Bring me that horizon. All right, Captain, here we go. Hey everybody, it's Cameron here with the third episode of Framework, a film-centric podcast about films. Today we're talking about some exciting films. Uh, well, maybe just one film, but you know, who knows? It's a conversation. Anything can happen. We're joined by somebody really special, somebody really awesome. I think you're going to love them. Um, but before we get into it, I just have a reminder that things are changing at Framework. Small things, but nonetheless, things that are important. So just a reminder that although I have said in the past that we're going to release every Monday, uh, every first Monday of every month. It's actually going to be the first of every month because not every, uh, not every month is the same. So some months are, you know, the seventh might be the Monday, but we'll have it ready on the first. So what we're going to do going forward is a little bit different than what we've done, but I don't feel too bad about it because, uh, you know, this is only the third episode. Um, but regardless, let's just, you know, uh, let's just jump right in. This is Framework, a film-centric podcast and YouTube show about how one frame in a film speaks to the bigger picture. So that's it. You know that already. If you're a new listener, welcome to Framework. If you've been listening for the past two episodes, you know exactly how this works. You know how it's going to work. Um, and, and that's that. So let's just get right into it. Um, today we're joined by Dylan, Mr. Dylan Broda. How are you today? Hello. I am pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you and I have been talking a lot over the course of the pandemic, and, you know, it just so happens that today we're talking over uh, over Discord. We can't be uh, uh, in, this, in, our, in the company of one another, but hopefully soon, but not only because of the pandemic, but also because of proximity. Where are you uh, calling in from today? I'm calling in from a little hamlet known as Sarnia, Ontario, right by the border of uh, between Canada or Ontario and Michigan specifically, right by the beautiful sunny Lake Huron coast. Not much to it more than that. It's not the exactly a film and television mecca of the world, but for the time being, it is a safe haven that I have found myself in. At least I have a microphone. Yeah, at least you have a microphone and uh, and sort of an ability to be creative and 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 produce your art and that sort of a thing. You know, Dylan has been part of uh, my life since the first year of uh, college. Uh, I say that like we're getting married, uh, but yeah, we might as well be. Um, yeah, Dylan and I <laughs> met in college. Dylan and I took the same program in college. Sort of a similar uh, relationship the you know that i have with uh, robin who was on our first episode um but i haven't known robin as long so so dylan and i uh we we've been uh, we've been chatting about doing an episode of framework basically since i've had the idea for the show and i'm really happy to have uh to have dylan on the podcast and i hope everybody uh you know who's listening today gets something out of what dylan has to say so dylan i'm just gonna at this point now that i've done my reminder about the first monday of every month um i just would love to give you the opportunity to talk about yourself for you to talk about yourself and to tell the listeners today what exactly it is that you do and and or 
um, what you want to do. Um, you know, introduce yourself however you see fit, but this is your opportunity. So go ahead. I'll, uh, I'll do my best to carpe this diem then. So yeah, uh, my name is Dylan Broda. Uh, I'm an emerging filmmaker, sound editor, music composer, jack of all trades kind of sort, uh, and co-founder of a production company called Glimpse. As Cam said, I'm a recent graduate of Sheridan College's Bachelor of Film and Television program, but fret not, I'm a movie lover, not a film snob. <laughs> Much of my work involves uh, telling stories and helping others tell their stories in whatever form that may take at the moment. And it's an exciting time to to be a part of the film and television and animation industry as they're all innovating and coming together to, you know, really advance the art in ways that we haven't seen before. So it's exciting, exciting to be a part of, especially at the ground level, especially as uh, as a newcomer. Awesome. Uh, that that was a great introduction. I think. You know, it's something interesting that you said sticks out with me, just like, you know, fear not, I'm a movie lover, not a film snob. I think that's great. Uh, I think that's awesome. I think that's one. I think that is one for the books, for sure. Well, so long as you don't read my essays. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say the same about me, too, right? I mean, you know, you and I have a... have. Maybe you, maybe you more than I do, but we have a knack for the written word because also we're writers, right? So um, we have a tendency to just kind of blabber on and on and on about about stuff, even if it's not movies, but mostly movies. But um, but you know, we do love the we do love movies. I mean, like we we do love them, don't we? (laughs) When you go to film school, especially Sheridan, where we went, where we were um, lucky enough to attend. You, you know, you kind of joke and shit on people who go to university for for film and they just get the theory, but they never make a movie. And then they go and do their, you know, then they go do their certificate or whatever and they try and make a movie and it's a piece of shit because they never got the practical experience or the training, right? Yeah. Anyways, we shit on those people, but those are great <laughs> people too. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, there's this, there's always going to be like you know, artists and creatives and film film school, people who went to film school, especially even with people who went to other film schools, just like always in competition with one another. But yeah. The funny thing, the funny thing about that too is, is that we get shit on by the, the people who are in the industry uh, because they didn't go into film school because they're self-taught or just have the, the bootstrap and gumption to pick up a camera, shoot something and get it, get an award <laughs> from it or get get merit yeah and i mean that's that's the thing right in terms of this industry i'm learning faster now than i did when i was in school that there are so many ways in like that you know it's it's um it's an industry that i really do believe is you know guarded by so many different gatekeepers and things like that and they they make it hard for some people to 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 get in and, you know, at, at least at the ground level, I've had a lot of experience of trying to get, you know, a, an entry level position and entry level doesn't mean no year's experience. It means either one, two or three, <laughs> you know, and uh, so, but nonetheless, you know, there are a lot of ways into this industry and um, and there's a lot of really great people in this industry and they all came from different areas of other industries so it's and, and you know um the film industry itself so you know there are there are a lot of different kinds of people and i think that's what makes um the film and television so so cool and like you said it is changing and it is great to be a, 
the ground level and um you, you mentioned glimpse which which i co-founded with you which is something that you know we're building from the ground up and hopefully is successful and um i have ice <laughs> and what and what i wanted to do nice that's actually a good way that's a good segue right there um dylan we're gonna do a quick little summary. i'm gonna do a quick little summary of the movie that we chose to talk about in framework and i want you to help me out a little bit but um you know i i i, I find myself on a whole bunch of different um you know websites about movies and imdb and all that kind of stuff and you know no summary is perfect right i mean they're all they're all more like guidelines <laughs> right? uh-huh. so <laughs> you catch you got that one you got that needn't use such big words we're not but humble pirates yeah 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 i mean i think by now if you're an avid fan of pirates of the caribbean you figured out that that's what we're talking about we're talking about pirates of the caribbean um the first one because in my view, that's the best one. Sorry, I was providing theme music for you. No, I appreciate it. That's I isolated you so that you know the we just heard your brilliance. You know, so here's my summary. Okay, here's my little summary. I wrote it like ten minutes ago after watching the film. It doesn't capture everything about the movie, but it, it hopefully captures a little bit about it. So Captain Jack Sparrow teams up with William Turner to save the governor's daughter, Elizabeth Swan when she is taken by a group of undead pirates led by Captain Barbosa. The movie is an eccentric adventure tale filled with action, comedy, and some romantic nuance. The film was released by Disney in 2003. The director is Gore Verbinski, and the DOP is Darius Wolski. I might have butchered both of their names, but nonetheless, that's what I've got. It's nice and short and concise, but again, it's just a summary. It's just a guideline. So, Dylan, you tell me how I did, and if you think my summary was shit, I'll let you kind of summarize some of the movie. Well, I think that's a that's a pretty apt summary. I mean, the movie has immortalized... It, it was actually a bit of a sleeper hit at first, and nobody thought it was going to do well. I mean, it's a mm. it's a movie about pirates uh, at the time where pirates weren't exactly something that were cool. At least I don't think they were cool so much in the '90s. Like, uh, what are the major pirate movies you can think of that came before Pirates of the Caribbean? I think there was the Muppets Treasure Island. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think. I, I think Pirates of the Caribbean is what, you know, made pirates what they are today. They made them cool. They made them swarthy. They made them, they gave them an essence of true grit, which you don't normally, you don't normally, or you didn't normally see with pirates. Pirates were very much a Disneyland attraction at the mm. inception of Pirates of the Caribbean. And that's what it was based on. Like you have, don't forget, this was based on, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney World, uh, or what's it, Disney Disneyland California? I think it's Disney World uh, in Orlando. And what a departure! <laughs> uh, and I think that comes. I think they were a little nervous, or Disney was a little nervous to pull the trigger on Pirates of the Caribbean because they didn't know whether it would sell. And mm. they, I know this is less of a summary, but it's worth talking about. They 
had something completely different in mind that was more of uh that was more closer in tone to what the ride was which was you know the yo ho yo ho the pirate's life for me swashbuckling and all that all that nonsense whereas hmm. jack sparrow uh was originally on paper just supposed to be a funny man nothing more uh little did disney know and uh, much to their lament later that it would be jack sparrow would become the titular character of the film would we say he's the protagonist no but he is most the you couldn't you couldn't have the film without him he is uh within and without the movie and i think part of that comes down to just what a great character he is and what a great character Johnny Depp made him to be. Uh, and yeah, we, we learn that even though Jack is a pirate, he is a good man. And, uh, he watching the story unfold all the way through to, to him getting revenge on, uh, Barb, for taking away essentially taking away jack's freedom taking away jack's ship and crew that was jack's freedom that's why jack wanted to be a pirate uh and in the process of getting his freedom back he helped will and elizabeth gain their freedom romantically <laughs> mm -hmm. and also helped uh barbosa and the ill-fated crew of the black pearl at the at the time as jack refers to them as his crew of miscreants uh, saves them as well, gives them freedom from their curse. So I guess you could say the movie's really about freedom. But when you think about, uh, when you think of Pirates of the Caribbean, or, uh, Curse of the Black Pearl, uh, there are probably mem many memorable images that come to mind. But this one that we're talking about today, in my opinion, is one of the most fantastic scenes in early 2000s cinema history. That may sound yeah, like I mean high praise, but sorry. No, yeah, I was just gonna say that's a really that's a really good kind of segue into into talking about what we're seeing because some of our listeners might be on Spotify or Apple Music uh, or some other streaming service where they don't get the value of seeing um, uh, a picture. So, um, yeah, I would love you know this is a good segue. I would love your help in just sort of explaining what we're looking at and and what scene it's from. Um, I believe both of us managed to um, watch Pirates of the Caribbean very recently, myself this morning, actually. So um, <laughs> I've got good memory of where this is from, but uh, I'll let you kind of talk a little bit about it because it, it was your choice. Um, and then we can just dive right into talking about this image, talking about the movie and talking about kind of where it fits and what it says about the film as a whole and... Yeah, just dive into a casual conversation. So let us know what we're looking at. Of course. Well, this scene, or at least the, the stellar music that accompanies it, which we'll have to touch on as well, is called mm -hmm. the Underwater March. And if you were to distill the coolest moments from the film outside of Captain Jack Sparrow himself, this would probably be it. But actually, before we can talk about this image specifically, I think we have to cover how we got to this point, a moment which is also one of my favorite lines from the film. So, spoiler alert, by the way, for an 18-year-old movie. Uh, but after... <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> after, um, after returning to the Isla de Muerta, which literally is just 
uh, Latin for Island of Death. <laughs> Much to everyone's disbelief, Jack manages to sway Captain Barbosa into his plan involving Will Turner as a bargaining chip. At least we're led to believe it's his plan. He could, after all, be making it all up as he goes along. But upon agreeing, Jack yells out, To the boats! And no one moves, awaiting their actual orders from Bar Barbosa. Uh, but to which point Barbosa says, Gents, take a walk. Not to the boats, nope. <laughs> take a walk. Uh, and boy, do they. So, like, we, right after that, we cut to a beautiful establishing shot of the Dauntless as the moon breaks free from the clouds above, casting this ghostly blue light onto the water, silhouetting the ship in frame around the stone entrance to Isla de Muerta. Beautiful. Chef's kiss. Then we cut underwater. How do we know we're underwater? Well, there's fish, of course. <laughs> uh, those quickly disperse, though. Uh, the skeleton crew emerges from the depths and into the moonbeams, showing us what they really are. And they're in view, but not entirely, uh, as they walk slowly and menacing towards the camera. Right up until they're underneath the ship. And for a moment, they appear human again. A glimpse of the men they once were, before emerging on the other side as this undead horde they've become. Uh, and at this point, we've already seen the skeleton's special effect in the moonlight gimmick a few times, but at this scale, in this setting, the reveal is spectacular in such impending uh, slow motion. So that's the scene we're looking at, or the cross, the frame we're looking at, this cross section of this scene is as they're approaching us. Mm -hmm. uh, it's worth noting too that the filmmakers do not use much slow motion cinematography in this movie so when it's used I mean as it should be it's used for emphasis but not just emphasis it's, I mean it's practical too they're, they're underwater after all and when you think about the physics of it wading through water it's difficult enough but imagine if you if you did not float walking underwater mm -hmm. how slow and laborious that would be mm -hmm. I mean <laughs> uh, perhaps Perhaps skeletons are more hydrodynamic, but they're still slow. <laughs> but that's just yeah. it. The water cannot stop them. Uh, not even the pressure or darkness of walking on the seafloor. So what makes these cursed pirates so terrifying, and anything for that matter, is this image of a persistent, unyielding evil. Um, but <laughs> I digress. Let's talk about this frame specifically. Uh the first mm -hmm. thing I like about it is the clever choice of how they've framed the pirates uh, the pirates between the ship's underbelly and its shadow. So they're effectively narrowing the frame. Now, uh, as we know, a good scene in any movie is one that can do multiple things at once, right? Uh, and this is, image is an example uh, of something that's doing three things at once. Uh, the first and most obvious is that it it focuses our attention on what is about to unfold because they're stepping into visibility, right? It's a kind of the tree versus the forest effect. We we don't see all of them, but it's insinuated rather than spelling them out that, you know, you just see this massive skeleton pirates coming towards you in this murky blue. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I would, you know, I would love to talk about... Um, I would love to talk about the murkiness of the of the underwater and the and the great almost the blue gradient that we see from the ocean floor to you know moving up in the frame where the light is coming in through the kind of where closer to the surface 
you know, and and I, I what I noticed from watching, you know, not just in this frame, there, you know, it, I mean, it's absent in this frame, but something that the whole movie manages to do is contrast the colors orange and blue, mm -hmm. uh, and a, and a lot of that is a lot of that is is practical, right? I mean. When yeah. you you know when you're in the pirates' age, you're kind of like you're expecting there to be a lot of gunfire and fire and all these kinds of things. So which means there's going to be a lot of orange, and then you know and then night falls and and you know you're in sort of a more aggressive or violent scene and and the blue kind of comes with it, right? Yeah. And, and in this in this scene, there's no orange whatsoever. It's just. The light, even the light coming from the moon, it's coming from the moon, not the sun. So it's closer to white than it is to any other, uh, any other orange color. So it just once again reminds you in this frame that we're with the skeleton crew, not with anybody else. Um, and and that's and and obviously reminding us that you know this is the middle of the night. I mean, I believe before the wide shot where the where the ship is framed between the rocks, we see the moon. So, yeah. of course, the moon is a reminder and a transition method that the editor uses and the director uses oh, yeah. to get us out of the cave. It's a it's a great um, shot, and it mm -hmm. it really defines uh, everything right there for you. And the moon, or I should more specifically, the blue light, uh, and or the blues of the film and their associated blacks. Uh, really represent the unknown uh, in this film and everything else is just flickering light Bes uh, besides the shots that are in the day which are usually the more uh, less action heavy shots except for the, the final uh, sea fight where they end up getting marooned on the island again but uh, <laughs> no the the blue and especially uh having a frame that is just all blue is a great way of getting us fully into the unknown at this point like what is happening we know they went for a walk where did they go ah they start emerging underwater it's just a great scene and um the uh it also um the establishing shot of the ship earlier it shows us that that's you know that's where the dauntless is and the moon is out oh. so there are there are two facts we know and then when we're underneath uh the top part of the frame that's narrowing our field of view that is the ship we just saw mm -hmm. so it's a visual semantic hook uh reminding us that that is the ship and they are close and getting closer exactly and i mean you'll see that a lot in in, in movies it's a very common choice uh made normally by the director and and with input from from the cinematographer it's a very common uh choice to make where you know the edges of your frame and i'm talking and i'm talking like the very edge like where the frame ends is not necessarily yeah. uh you know indicative of of the frame itself or or re represents the limits of the frame um there's usually a frame happening within the frame in this case the you know the shadow at the sea floor okay and the darkness of the ship at the top is creating a frame within a frame it is yeah uh which 
at the time, you know, must have it must have been something to see this in theaters. You know, this is when widescreen was really starting to become more prominent, and they shot this in absolutely. I, I remember viewing this on our old cathode ray tube TV, our four by three box made the made the movie look terrible because it just crunched it, <laughs> and we were like, "Where's?" Where's the rest of the movie? Why are these big black bars on the screen? Uh, <laughs> but the width of it does allow you to see more action. So I'm glad that movies went <laughs> went towards a a wider view. Uh, but that's uh, a final point too: is uh, that that creating of the frame within a frame limits our field of view, which gives us no escape mm -hmm. visually. And there, the only yep. area that we can look through, the pirates are approaching us. Yeah, and when you think about it, I mean, very it's very common uh, in terms of craftsmanship and technique for filmmakers to visually, uh, visually convey, convey something that the audience should feel. Um, not only that, sorry, visually convey something that not only represents what the audience should feel, but also what the, what the other characters who might be off screen are feeling. So for example, uh, Commodore Norrington's ship, okay, uh, how they've been duped because they're waiting at the entrance to the cave in these other smaller boats and, and only a few, right, of the, um, of the, of Commodore Norrington's crew are yeah. on this ship waiting. So they've they've got the upper hand suddenly because as soon as they enter the ship, they have the upper hand because of the lack of Norrington's crew. Uh, you know, so Norrington effectively has been duped, and Norrington is in these small paddle boats, and he's got nothing. He he's trapped. Yeah, there's nothing other he can than do. Get back right? to the ship, and and so yeah, other other than get back to the ship, which they which they do so rather successfully. But now as an audience member, we're like, oh, oh yeah, oh, because. They're fucked. You know, you know, as I mentioned like the, earlier, they, yeah. the skeletons, you know, are the, the crew, they can't die. Or I mean, later in the movie, even just a, f a few scenes later, Barbosa says like, you've only got yeah. one shot and we can't die, you know, for the slower people in the audience, that's the stakes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. Like if you haven't figured it out by now, then you know, for sure when, when Barbosa says yeah, it. And that's intercutting from that scene onward back to the fight on the ship just really cements it home but before any of that happens them walking through this water uh, is just the scariest thing to a sailor it's like nothing can stop them we can be out far at sea and they can still walk no matter how slowly towards us uh it's a it's a bit of a flex yeah, too yeah. <laughs> on barbosa and the crew's part you know that they can casually just so do this because they can't die. Um, so yeah it's, yeah, it's as you said, you know, they're they're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Um, there are a couple things, you know, I want to talk about that will obviously bring us back to this image. Uh, and not all of them may be represented or in this image, or at least not to me right now, but perhaps they are represented in this image and you can help enlighten and and help me see how they are that would be fantastic but, but there's course. a couple of things i noticed from watching the film just recently um and and i'll start with 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 the first one here about shadows and and physical barriers and i think that just it's going to tie in a little bit 
what we uh, just talked about because of course we're you know we just finished talking about frames within frames and how you know the cinematographer has chosen to uh, you know include the top part of the ship and the bottom part of the shadow the you know creating focus and a frame within a frame yeah. and they're the only thing that you can look at and the frame is smaller than you know kind of the standard size of whatever they choose to use 16 by 9 or 235 or 171 or whatever the fuck, you know whatever they choose to do but uh, so the frame is smaller than the edges of the actual uh, camera's view in terms of in terms of um what we see that's in motion in this case people walking towards us yeah um and and earlier on in the film, there is a couple of examples of this not, that don't only happen um, underwater in blue, you know, bathed in blue light. Uh, and and I noticed that over the course of the film, there's this tendency to use shadows and physical barriers to craft the image. Oh yeah, uh, we and we see that uh, we see that a lot. And one one other um, one other. Uh, example that sticks out in my head if you remember is uh, is a very important scene because it's a scene that kind of gives jack sparrow the idea you know uh it's when will turner comes and breaks jack sparrow out of uh out of jail like out of the you know out of the barracks i guess yeah. right and and he's talking about leverage and before he actually opens the the um the jail cell pops it open um, there's this, there's a shot from the inside of the jail cell where he's looking through the bars and they're casting a fairly dark shadow onto Will's face, right? Yeah. Um, and in this he case, the, the shadow, exactly. And in this case, the shadow's underneath his eyes. And I've seen in some films where like the shadow actually covers their eyes and that's a very bold choice. But in this case, it's underneath the eyes. So you can still connect with the character in a way that you desire to as the audience, you know, we want to see their, the eyes, right? Yeah. Um, but that, you know the casting of that shadow is so subtle, and the fact that there's this barrier, it tells you so much about where the character um, is and where they're gonna find themselves, kind of later on in the film. And then you know the writing comes in so perfectly, exposing later the fact that he is the leverage, as you as you as you very correctly just said, you know. Yeah. So um, it's a trend like throughout the film. Where, oh, yeah. we, where the cinematographer uses shadows and barriers to play with... Uh, and they cast shadows into the frame that reveal just enough information. That's the art of it. Just enough information so that the audience instantly gets and understands what is there beyond the obvious. Uh, and it's a very... Mm -hmm. You know, we don't like to think as screenwriters or as filmmakers that we're playing mental games with the audience but we're very much working hard to entertain you <laughs> and in order to entertain you we have to make you uh believe it was uh brad bird that said this at a ted talk but you have to make the audience work for their dinner you know they have you have to give them just enough information either in the form of audio visual or musical clues cues or even dialogue cues uh that give more mm -hmm. information but just enough information to keep the audience interested and wondering and invested in the story and already starting to jump to conclusions that way the brain is equally satisfied when some conf uh, conclusions are met 
and also surprised when some conclusions are end up being a twist and that also works very well in setting up everything we know about the skeleton crew of the black pearl is your brain starts to Mm -hmm. wonder now these guys are skeletons so what happens if they were to fall overboard well they they don't drown yes or for example like yeah or or for example like you know and this is very much this very much plays out like what happens if a bomb explodes near them yeah or inside them (laughs) right so things like that that's part of the fun of writing good action Mm -hmm. is basically the what if and but then (laughs) you know Taking your subject matter, be it skeletons or an un- undead pirate, mm-hmm. and be adding a bunch of what ifs. Mm-hmm. What if they were underwater? What if they were caught in an explosion? What if they uh, the bomb was put inside of them while they were skeleton, and then they were pushed out of the moonlight, and now they're they're human again? What would happen? You know, those kind of fun questions lead to really interesting and satisfying visual scenes definitely definitely and and um this this is a a little bit of a of a transition that might be in into something that talks more about maybe uh other scenes in the film and other frames in the film but the visual language of of this of this uh of this film is is really interesting because i i noticed i noticed a couple things um and I actually had to pay a lot of attention to it. But, you know, I, th- I really believe that the visual language hinges on something that I refer to as steady urgency. Okay. Mm. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean. And I mean, of course, this is very much a studio film with a high budget. So, um, yeah. and they've got, they've got a lot of stuff going on. They've got a lot of cast members. They've got a lot of highly involved scenes scenes that might involve a lot of visual effects or practical effects. Um, Which, not to mention, the CGI at the time still stands up today. It does, absolutely. Albeit with much help from the high contrast, low-key lighting (laughs) that we talked about, that that it's in much of the film. And so so what what I'm getting at with the steady urgency is, is interesting. I mean, it's not just referring to... Uh, what it looks like and how they shot it, but um, the the basically how they approached um, production because I feel like they they uh, they approached the film in a very classic sense. Like there's a lot of scenes where you know there's a wide, there's an over the shoulder of both characters talking, and then maybe there's a close up and a close up of an object, and then that object is going to be a transition from the scene prior, right? So yeah. they 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 do that a lot, and that's very classic you know, Hollywood kind of, well, not classic, modern Hollywood. Okay. It's very modern Hollywood, Disney and, you know, these big companies who, who find a way to get you in a scene as soon as possible and out as, as late as possible and out as soon as possible. Right. Um, and, and, but the steady urgency also applies to, um, the, the visual language. And, and I want to talk about handheld and steady cam shots and how a lot of this stuff appears to be on a jib okay and how forgivable some of the uh, handheld shots are even though there aren't a lot 
Um, you know, yeah. and the reason that they're so forgivable is like very simple. It's because of the locale. Like they're literally, they're literally, yeah, they're, they're on, on a ship. ship or they're underwater. And if you've ever been on a ship or if you've ever been underwater, you know that your body doesn't necessarily control all the movement. Like you're not on pavement, right? Yeah. So that scene where Barbosa is introducing, uh, kind of uh, introducing Elizabeth to the curse and whatever and trying to get her to eat, you can see how. You know, the whole table is moving and whatever. Uh, oh, yeah, you can see the stuff hanging. You can see the stuff hanging and swaying in the and background. Stuff like that. And yeah. um, a lot of that is on a dolly track or on a tripod or on a or on a steady cam, but only some of it is on is on handheld. And actually, it's funny because um, for the most part, the camera moves without calling attention to the operator. That's kind of what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. And yet it still manages to it still manages to generate a sense of urgency, especially in those scenes where they're being attacked or they're or there's like a fight, there's a fight scene going on, you know. Um and if you've ever seen, you know, BTS of Pirates of the Caribbean, they've got these huge rigs. Oh yeah. You know, and the camera's kind of done sometimes the camera's not even on the ship. Like it's around the ship. Right. So have you ever seen some of that stuff? It's really it's really interesting to think about how how two things, right? Steady urgency that sound relatively opposite could be used together to create the 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 look that you're going for and the and the emotion and the feeling that you're going for. So I really and and only some shots call attention to the operator and I counted eight in the whole film um, that in my opinion call attention to the operator and there's one there's one that and this is not one of them by the way but there's one that you might remember where at first Barbosa thinks that Elizabeth is her last name's Turner so mm. they, they cut her hand and expect the curse to be lifted do you remember that of scene of course um, yeah uh, there's a there's then Will Turner shows up and takes her away with the medallion. And there's a shot, and the camera operator very clearly pans the camera to reveal that they're gone. Ah, yeah. So that's the first shot that I can think of in the whole film, or one of the sh only shots in the whole film, that really calls attention to the fact that there's somebody holding the camera recording. Like, like this, there's an operator, you know? Yeah. It's almost... Um, uh, but most of the film... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it's almost kind of a, a fourth wall break in a way. It's like in a, in a way, we become yeah. a part of the crew and we look over yeah. with the rest of the crew and Barbosa and see that they're gone. So I think it works. Uh, I also think it was... Um, I think it was necessary because the awesome set that they had for Isla de Muerta where it was just all of the this cavernous coral and all this gold and stuff but it's all really dark in there it's a lot of organic confusing shapes so mm -hmm. it's easy it's a good thing they had the lighting where they did because it's easy to get very lost and i think i think they felt that that was an effective way of illustrating that yeah they're gone <laughs> again for the slower people in the audience i suppose yeah and i mean when you see when you see Turner kind of coming up out of the water and then whatever, you sort of assume that that's what's going to happen. And so I wouldn't be surprised 
if the film worked without that shot, you just kind of cut to something where they're running away, but they chose not to do that. And I think that's perfectly acceptable and fine, you know, and I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And this goes back to something that you kind of said right there, where, how they decided to do these kind of, you know, quicker shots that call attention to the operator and sort of break the fourth fourth wall that are more handheld near the end of the film. Like this, the, most of these shots that I'm saying that I noticed, I noticed them in the second half of the movie where everything is starting to happen and we're starting to have more knowledge about what's in Jack's mind and how Jack kind of lied a little bit to William, you know, um, and how Jack sort of used William as as the leverage and, and that sort of thing. And And so, you know, to a degree, it's more fitting to have those kind of movements in the second half of this of this movie than in the first half because in the first half everything yeah. is sort of settled you know especially especially before um they especially before uh uh barbosa invades uh port royal for the first time where they where they Another capture her scene. which is which is basically yeah. what jump starts the whole film uh, it's a great scene oh yeah everything is so everything is so perfect in the choreography and how like you know, they, they go in and, oh, there's a great, there's a, actually, uh, there's a great frame in, in the beginning where, or where she's hiding in the closet. Oh, and he, and he uh, comes up and he's Rigetti like, looks through with his eyes. That's another example hello, of this. Hello, pop it. Yeah. There's another example of this where they're using physical barriers, right. To draw focus to him and really kind of to reframe the action and reframe yeah. the action. So that brings us back to this image as well so that's a really good thing um uh, so yeah there's so much also, you could say about this film eh? like it's a great oh it's yeah a great film and one thing like if this film was made today mm -hmm. i imagine some of the choices would be different and more inspired by uh other high high spec films and blockbusters the the visual aesthetics that is mm -hmm. like the blacks are pretty crushed mm -hmm. in Pirates of the Caribbean. Things are very high contrast. And I, I think that really works, not just for the visual effects, but just one, it's period <laughs> accurate. You know, everything was lit by flames and lanterns, you know, mm -hmm. and moonlight. And the moonlight is also a character in the film. You know, it is the revealing light of the of the pirates uh, this was uh, shot on film right i think i'm so. pretty sure uh Ooh. most blockbusters were still shot yeah. on film going into the early 2000s um uh, probably a lot more than people would realize mm -hmm. film was still the best medium optically uh in the early 2000s and i mean digital was like it's just still kind coming of is coming into developing it's still yeah because it's analog right yeah because it's so still kind really of is. i mean i would like this is this you is, can blow it up yeah to, to immense sizes to immense scans yeah and i mean th this is a little off topic but i was watching an episode of clarice the cbs paramount plus mgm show that's that's getting canceled oh, did you put the lotion in the basket <laughs> <laughs> no, so i'm watching Anyhow. an episode of this right and like there's like there's noticeable banding and dancing pixels and like mm. not even the darks, but like the darks and like the mids. Okay. So it's like, and I'm watching this on a high quality television 
on a broad like on television broadcast uh the way that sort of it, it's partially intended i mean they're going straight to streamer mm-hmm. as well but i mean the fact that i'm seeing banding and dancing pixels and the fact that it was shot on alexa mini and alexa lf means that we've got a long way to go and it it's like you know i think a lot of that is compression compression's the culprit you know but when you have as much money as cbs does to make the first season of clarice it's really surprising to me that you know we that as a viewer as just an average viewer at home like not only am i yeah. noticing that but my parents are noticing it too and you know i put a dvd i popped the dvd in for pirates of the caribbean and there's absolutely no banding no dancing even though it is nothing yeah even the screenshot of this looks great it's uh yeah right? and that's the thing too is uh the fact that film is a little more forgiving uh when underexposed or overexposed uh and it works very yeah. well in this case too not to say that it wasn't uh color graded or corrected uh of course it was but the intentional choice to obscure things has the audience imagining more complexity or more unknown things more imagination Mm -hmm. uh you know where maybe only a small number of elements are clearly represented so it, it enhances that feeling of uncertainty and mystery throughout the whole thing and i think this shot that we're focusing on is the prime example of all of the film's good features working for it the obscure the obscurity of the shadows the blue of the lighting the you know the gimmick of the moonlight shining on them causing the you know them to turn into skeletons it it all works so well uh and you combine this with the the music in this scene my goodness uh by klaus uh bedelt and hans zimmer uh it it kind of ingeniously combines and this is something you'll definitely have to go back and listen for but it combines uh all the different themes it combines like the swashbuckling theme that we hear earlier the lover's theme between uh, Will and Elizabeth. Uh, the cursed through the cursed crew theme is what makes up the most of it, and then it eventually segues into the the, the theme of the one last shot. Uh, and it is a march, like the undying skeletons. You know, it's it's triumphantly and dramatically rising in this unwavering tension. This and you've got yourself the perfect summary and lead up to the climax of the film which is right where that scene mm-hmm. takes place yeah and I, it's just funny because i was just about to prompt you to talk about the music in this scene um because it is so uh it's such a combination of what we've heard already um that makes it so relatable and and understandable to um to to the audience just you know when you see it and hear it you, you like oh shit <laughs> you know there's a battle and it's coming. also <laughs> like yeah and it's a heralding moment for the crew as well because we cut to a side shot mm-hmm. after yeah, this one 
where we see them as men walking underwater, just regular men underneath, you know, in the mm-hmm. shadow of the ship, unexposed to the moonlight, kind of walking across the threshold. Uh, yeah, there of are death. there are various then, um, uh, various close-ups after this shot um, to reveal yeah, a lot the, of, you know. A lot of visual yeah, symbolism. And, and you know what? Okay, so that's that's really that's really good of the visual symbolism part. Uh, there are there's two things I want to get into that are um, that we can tie back into this image, but it's it's a little bit more to do with um, the film as a whole, which is I think important because we got to get to that. Um, but before I do that, I just want to remind the audience that this podcast is sponsored by and produced by Red Current Entertainment. It's uploaded to RC Podcast, a subsidiary of Red Current Entertainment. Kevin DeRoos is the executive producer. I'm the producer and host, and today we have Dylan Broda as our guest. Hello. Uh, Dylan, um, where can we find your work? Oh, where can you find it? That's an excellent question. <laughs> uh, I suppose you could find uh, some of my stuff and links to my stuff on my Instagram page at Some People's Kid. Okay, cool. Some People's Kid. Uh, yeah. Beyond that, I hope to uh, share more in the form of movies that you can go and watch. But we'll get there someday. Oh, we'll get there someday. Are you working on a project right now? I, I, I'm. If, there is, there is a project, of course, that you and I are working on together that we're in the development stage on but if you did you want to share a little bit about that or do you want to keep that secret well yes of course now that you've uh, mentioned it well i could always <laughs> i could always yeah. cut i could always cut it out you know well the yeah the project that is the uh, at the center of my attention currently is a a project called recovery uh, which is a stop-motion animation, something, a medium I'm particularly fond of and kind of grew up making stop-motion films. Uh, and it's a story that has to deal with uh, mental health. It's in a sci-fi post-apocalyptic setting. What's not to love? Yeah, I mean... It- I'll keep most of the plot a secret for now as I... <laughs> Sounds uh, good. As I, I, hope to, uh, I hope to keep most of its plot a surprise. Yeah, and you know, I'm really excited. I read the outline, of course. Told you I would, I would do some notes uh, on that, which I'll, which I'll do, uh, you know, and then I'll probably have to redo the notes when you send me the first draft. But this is something we're working on, and I'm really excited about it. And uh, um, yeah, I would invite the audience of uh, Framework to just keep an eye out for, for recovery, um, and over the course of producing episodes for Framework. Um, I'll update the audience about about how that's going. Um, as I said, Red Curtain Entertainment is the sponsor and production company of Framework. Today we are recording outside of the studios, which are located north of Toronto, following COVID nineteen guidelines. How about awesome. that? Let's. That we don't have any. I mean, that's normally where I would sort of the fifty-five minute mark is normally where I would sort of do my commercials. But nobody's contacted me to do commercials because I think we only have like forty people in our audience, <laughs> so nobody cares about. Well, then their the shameless here. the shameless self plug is uh, is a welcome addition. It's a welcome addition, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about, which I think are broad. Things, but I, I want to start with symbolism first. 
And of course, there are a lot of symbols. And the reason I want to start with symbolism is because you mentioned it right before we did that sponsor spot. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to talk about the medallion. Okay. And uh, I'll, the biggest symbol of them all. I'll give you my interpretation of the medallion. And, and you know, I would love to hear yours and whether or not you agree or disagree with with what I took from um, from the medallion on screen. And before I get into talking about the medallion, I just want to say that there are so many movies, almost every movie that includes some kind of small form factor trinket or whatever cursed or item what have you blessing from the or, goddess uh, yeah or item <laughs> that provides some kind of like that provides some kind of uh uh symbolic representation or what or what have you lord or, of the rings foil. with, the, with yeah. the ring is one of the oh. biggest ones okay yeah, save that for another podcast yeah <laughs> 90 minutes of walking okay um, What's your interpretation? I'm interested so, to hear. So, you know, I think a lot of people would look at the medallion and go freedom because freedom mm. from li- from the curse, all right? Um, and freedom for pirates and for um, people who love pirates. I think, I think a lot of people are going to dive to that conclusion. I think that's more than valid, okay? Um, but I think, at least at the beginning of the film and throughout the film... Okay, the medallion symbolizes two things depending on whose perspective you look at it um, from. Hope and despair. Hmm. Okay, so hope because it gives Barbosa's crew hope um, that they one day will live mortal because obviously they've gone through, Hmm. um, you know, what we would normally think is beneficial like being immortal would be great you know when you know we all think immortality would be awesome until we're immortal right he he outlines exactly why he Uh, he does he does he outlines multiple reasons why he talks about being in the he talks about being in the company of a woman he talks about uh, eating and drinking Ooh, turns and, to ash in our mouths, you know, and and satisfaction and dissatisfaction, and so I think for the pirates, for the cursed pirates, it represents hope because they mm-hmm. lost it, and now it's back again. And we know that it can call the pirates because we saw that at the beginning, with the wave sort of going through the the water and like sending that sort of signal to the. To the the Black Pearl and how it came and decimated Port Royal and took and took Elizabeth Swan. So I think for the pirates, oddly enough, I mean for the pirates, the antagonists, I guess, hope is sort of one one symbolic thing that I think is mm-hmm. represented through the medallion. The second one is despair. And I think it's despair because of how much trouble it's causing Elizabeth and Jack and uh, and Will Turner, and how you know this medallion could basically bring all this all these problems to their li- their lives, and it does bring these problems to their lives, and um, it, it, so much so that at one point Will's head is almost about to be cut off. And 
and his blood spilt just in case just for (laughs) just in case just for the the lifting of this curse that the pirates got themselves into in the first place Mm -hmm. so i think that is a that's my that was my interpretation this time around and i've never really come to that conclusion because i've always looked at the medallion as freedom um and freedom sort of ties both of those things together but i wanted to get your take on not just that but your initial interpretation of the medallion and whether or not that's changed over time uh yeah well my my initial interpretation was also kind of similar uh similarly abstract as freedom but actually i i didn't come to the conclusion that it was hope or despair though uh my my end interpretation of the medallion is temptation uh because no one who picks up the medallion does it inadvertently it is a choice to pick up the medallion it was a choice for the pirates to take the medallion just as much as it was a choice for elizabeth to take the medallion off of will's neck uh which and it's what why it's tempting i mean beyond the fact that it's just gold and beyond the fact that it grants immortality uh this is a curse a side effect they don't know it grants immortality or at least they didn't initially but it is the temptation for the pirates initially it was the temptation of what that amount of treasure could buy them they would be free men on which the got seas them in trouble for the rest I mean, of their days the, you know and for which did get them in trouble yeah and then the temptation for elizabeth the temptation for something outside of her provincial life for freedom, for adventure, the adventure she longs for, the temptation for will uh, to, conf- you know, to go after the woman he loves, and the temptation for Jack to get back at Barbosa. And even in the end, you know, it comes right down to where he says, you know, when he takes it in his own hand and he's playing with it in, uh, across his knuckles, it's like, couldn't resist, mate. Uh, I think, yeah, that's, that is what it represents is that Mm -hmm. temptation, but it comes at a cost. Uh, It is a, it is a lusting or longing uh, is what it instills. Not a desire, but a, a longing for something. Uh, And you pay a heavy price for it. Every character who touched the medallion paid a price for it. Yeah. And I think, and I think that, I mean, that's obviously... I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's not about not about accuracy, but I think that's a great interpretation. I think temptation is not something that has come to mind to me before, but I think that that ultimately, you know, that might be more accurate than freedom and or hope and despair and whatever. However, with that said, of course, with the temptation comes the hope that, you know, even though, even though instinctually, you know, um, the characters or some of the characters might already know that um w- you know with acquiring the medallion does come um some sort of price mm-hmm. um so there's sort of like every time you're tempted to do something or every time you're tempted to grasp at the medallion and hold on to the medallion there is that hope that there won't be a price to pay uh as a result of 
of uh, of acquiring it. And uh, 100% of the time, you know, they're wrong because there is a, a price to pay. And I think very relatable to human experience and to our experience and um, I think people's experience. And I think the, the, what makes this movie um, a, a Disney movie and a, um, you know, sort of like a, a, a uh, universally understood thematic film is the fact that no matter where you come from, or who you are, you can look at the medallion and from your own perspective and from your own life, you could take something from that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that's lovely. And I, I really connect with what you're saying that the, the, the temptation and, and I think, uh, yeah. And I think, um, I think you're right. And I think to a degree, we both have, um, you know, we both have some interesting thoughts about, about the theme of this movie. And what is your medallion, ladies and gentlemen at home listening in? Put it in the comment section below. <laughs> what is your medallion? What is your temptation that you have paid a great sacrifice in achieving? So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the first thing I wanted to talk about is is the medallion and, and the symbolism and the, and the sort of the theme. You know, but also one of the first things they tell you in film school and and not just in film school, but probably in um, if you were to go to school for writing or for English or literature Mm -hmm. is that you can't explain the theme in one word. You know, when somebody asks you, what's your theme and you say freedom? Well, that's (laughs) kind of, you know, that's kind of not specific. I mean, you need that's a concept, maybe, you know, or an idea for the base of a theme, you know. Uh, but in this case, I think freedom, hope, despair, temptation, they all kind of tie into, they all kind of tie, tie into the medallion. Um, and I, I think that's wonderful because Pirates of the Caribbean, even though it is this eccentric adventure film can do that, you know, and Disney's good at that. Disney does that with almost all their movies. Yeah. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about, and this will come back to, uh, to the the frame that we have and not just that frame but um many uh, many others and not just frames but shots so over any sort of kind of duration um and this this central question that framework is all about what can one frame or shot at whatever duration tell us about the film as a whole and that's really the question right and i think mm-hmm. I think there are two things that cinematography and the visual language, uh, as well as the editing, you know, and that's kind of uh, that ties in with the visual language that this film that that stick out that this film does really well. And I think they're they're very broad, so I'll, we'll have to probably you know talk about how they relate to pirates specifically. But they're they're motion and realization and how they tie into each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. So more often than not, with Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, if a character is realizing something, the camera is moving. Mm-hmm. And a really good example of that is um, pushing in to take note of something, to call attention to it. A movement from a medium shot into a close-up. Okay, It's used to make exposition interesting and engaging. Like in the in the famous diner scene where... Uh, um, Elizabeth is concealing the knife 
to get ready to possibly kill Barbosa, mm-hmm. right? There's a moment where he's talking about the curse and the camera moves in on him and it pushes in to call attention to what he's saying and also make what he's saying engaging because he's mm-hmm. being very expository. It's that doing multiple things at once that is, you know, the hallmark of a good scene. Exactly. And it happens in reverse as well. And this is an audience realization, less so of a character realization. And uh, I'll have to find it. Let me just find it in my notes because I want to figure out exactly, just a minute, I want to figure out exactly what Barbosa says. Um, oh, they're coming to an agreement and Barbosa says, agreed. And, Bar- and he steps towards the camera. I'm not sure he says it like agree. Yeah, I, I don't think he says it like <laughs> More that like, either. Agree. Yeah, yeah, like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but he says that, and then he steps towards the camera. So it's kind of like a reverse mm-hmm. of like the camera moving in, but him stepping towards. So motion can refer to what the camera, how the camera is moving, but also how the things in the scene are moving, right? And in the the frame that you chose. I'm not sure if there's much camera movement, but there's definitely a lot of movement in the in this sequence. Um, they're progressing forward towards the oh, definitely um, their goal of taking a walk, which means more than just walking, right? So, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it means a lot more than just walking. Uh, there, and and the movement uh, too, as I mentioned earlier, is is in that slow motion, which uh, for all other, I think the only other slow motion parts or uh, cinematography in the film is reserved for shots of the medallion, like the medallion being dropped, the medallion falling, the medallion floating in the water. Uh, besides maybe, I think, uh, the flag, like the black flag at the beginning unfurling when the wind changes... Uh, in Port Royal, I think that was also in slow motion, but perhaps not. Uh, but I think that says something as well that the filmmakers were trying to achieve was the ethereal or slow motion was used to explain the ethereal or was used to show the the unreal or the supernatural <laughs> elements best. And I think using that one shot in the film also as slow motion parallels with the shot we get at the beginning of the film where the medallion is around Elizabeth's neck after she's fallen uh, off the platform below near the rocks into the water. And the medallion floats up slowly and, you know, it releases that pulse. You can just kind of imagine these skeletons walking across the ocean floor uh, in search of the medallion which actually brings me to an interesting uh point which is something i've always wondered this scene is actually a bit of a plot hole or is it decide for yourself so at the earlier at the beginning of the film shortly after elizabeth is captured and brought on board the black pearl because she's using the name turner Uh, In her negotiations with Barbosa and the pirates, she threatens to drop the medallion over the side of the boat into the harbor below. And she teases this by releasing just a little bit, but still holding onto the chain. And then they're all like, no, you know, they were worried she was going to drop it. But why? Why are they worried? Surely, 
They're yeah. Why are they worried? They're not afraid of going down into the water. They can survive underwater. They can and they can feel its presence. They're drawn to it. So, it being dropped in the water is not. Uh, it, it wouldn't be an actual threat to them. They could easily retrieve it because we see them walking on, you know, walking <laughs> beneath the seafloor later in the film. That begs the question, why did the filmmakers leave that there? Or why did they choose to do that? Because it would be a bit of a plot hole. That is, that is the whole motivation for Elizabeth's negotiation. Well, I think, I think that, uh, one, it sets up that the pirates aren't really negotiating with Elizabeth. You know, they're kind of playing her. And two, their reaction is visceral more than logical. They they are connected to the curse. And so, of course, they're going to have a you know dramatic reaction whenever they might lose the gold, even if they know that they can get it back. So knowing that, I think that that's a, that's a fun choice because at the beginning we think that, oh, she's negotiating. Aha, she's got him. But then later we realize that their reaction to it being dropped was almost like an invisible set of strings attached to them. And as soon as she dropped it, it started pulling them right. towards it. Almost like as soon as it was leaving their hands, they were ready to jump on it. I think that's a fun a fun thing because if it's not a plot hole again decide for yourself then it's not of any great consequence to the film as a whole but uh or sorry if it is a plot hole then it's not of any great consequence to the film as a whole but if it's not a plot hole as I as I don't think it is um then it's very it's a very clever and intentional use of blocking an action as well as world building all in one little mm. quick scene of the you know teasing yeah, the you know, it, the that's an interesting I love that scene yeah you know just just also just the sound of like the medallion kind of partially coming out of her hand oh yeah the um that yeah and the the cut to a like the cut to a close up almost of uh a kind of a cut to a close-up but um but yeah no i love this scene um you know and it, it see what you said sort of begs a question in me, in me a little bit um about about the world mm -hmm. because who's to say that they're immortal or like that the effects of the immortality are during the daytime because the moon comes out and there's a big emphasis on the moon uh, and the moonlight. And that's when we sort of see that the curse uh, affects them in terms of their body physically. So that begs the question, like in daytime, could they walk under the water or, you know, even though they can't be killed, do they have those ab other abilities? Like how far does the world building sort of go? Right. I would say yes, um, and there's a, there's a few reasons why. Uh, first is we see that uh, Barbosa gets stabbed in the chest with a knife by Elizabeth, and it does nothing. He doesn't bleed. Yeah. 
there's also uh, in the scene that we're talking about uh, they when they go under the boat we see them as normal human beings uh, in the shadow of the moon but as soon as they step back out into the direct moonlight then there are there are skeletons again uh, I think they can still they still are prone to damage uh, like how uh, Will throws a I believe it's an axe at the one guy and he gets concussed or he, he it gets stuck in his back but n it's nothing of extended consequence they always seem to come back right uh, and also there we know from when the governor is trapped uh, in the the drawing room of the dauntless and he, he <laughs> the hands are coming in and he manages to break off one of the hands because it's got it's pulling his wig and he puts the wig or he puts the uh, the hand in a drawer and locks it in the drawer uh, which is a great little funny scene but the hand keeps moving and thumping around after it's been severed from the body uh, which says that even when they are broken apart they're not exactly dead so hopefully that kind of I think answers the question you had about the world there but there is another interesting plot hole, and this one I, I am more convinced is a plot hole. But feel free to con uh, to take a contrary opinion. Why isn't Elizabeth a skeleton? You must wonder, because she has in her possession the medallion. And we know that you don't necessarily have to have it on your person, as the pirates certainly didn't. Uh, the parts of the Black Pearl certainly didn't. They don't. They had them most of them in a chest at Isla de Muerta, but it was the fact that they had taken them and hadn't given them all back with the blood repaid that they were still cursed. So anybody else who would take one is also cursed. It could be argued that because it was given to Will uh, by his father, and then uh, that it might not have cursed him, but. Elizabeth did then steal it from William. And she does explain later in her defense that the, uh, she did this because she was afraid of what they might do to him if they found out he was a pirate. But it was also selfishness on her own part. Again, it was that temptation. It was a pirate medallion. She wanted to know what it was like to be a pirate. And she even, you know, later in the film, she's wearing it. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, for much of the film, actually, she's wearing it. So why isn't she cursed? Why doesn't she share the curse? She took it from someone, maybe perhaps not from the island itself, but she did take it, and it is in her possession. Mm. And we know that uh, even if it's taken indirectly, it still affects the the bearer or the taker. Uh, in the case of Jack the monkey, for instance, uh, who is an undead monkey <laughs> for th all of the movie and for the rest of the the series, in fact, as a running gag, uh, because the monkey took a medallion and has it in its possession, which mm -hmm. is why it is also undead. So it's it begs the question: Why isn't Elizabeth undead? Yeah. So I mean, I mean. There's there's probably somebody out there like 
you know, who's more equipped to answer this than I am. I think I think you sort of answered it. Like I think you sort of answered why it's possible that it, why she is not undead is because is because of how not how she acquired it, but how Will acquired it. Um, and then it's not until it, it and it's not until it returns to the possession of Captain Barbosa that it actually becomes. Um, uh, effective again, I guess. That she took it out of fear that he was a pirate, which is untrue. Yeah. Um, I guess you could make the argument that Will is a pirate by blood. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's... He is a pirate by... Or his father was a pirate, and that was uh, what Captain Jack Sparrow was trying to beat into his head at the beginning of the film <laughs> was he could still be a good man even though even if he was a pirate or even if he had a he had a father for a pirate yeah it's, it's nice that it, the movie comes full circle and at the end where you know elizabeth's father's like well is are you sure this is what you want he is a blacksmith and then she goes no he's a pirate well, they and, all get and, what they wanted in the end, don't they? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, further to that, um, her, her father also says, you know, sometimes the pirate way is the way, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, so that's also really, I think, interesting. And this is, of course, straying away from the original frame <laughs> that we that, were talking yeah, about. Yeah, Let's but, let's bring it back really quickly to the original frame, just to kind of talk about maybe how uh, how some of this re relates to um, the original frame, because we're at an hour and twenty five minutes, so we just got to wrap it up. But we can definitely schedule another Pirates of the Caribbean conversation. Um, oh yeah, I mean, I could talk about all four of the movies. I know, and there are only uh, four. The fifth one doesn't exist because it's terrible. I, I started watching, like, I started watching the fifth one, and 20 minutes in, I turned it off. Uh, what fifth one? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was on there, Netflix. There I was watching it on Netflix, and it, I turned it off. If I went to the theater to watch the non-existent fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie, it would have been the first movie that I walk out of. Mm, that's, well, how bad, that's how bad it was. That is how unimpressed I was about the first 20 minutes of that non-existent movie. Yeah, well, my sister and I certainly uh, we're tempted to had we not been in the company of our parents as well when we went and saw this in theaters right non-existent yeah. movie of course uh it was already sad at how overstretched the franchise was becoming uh due to disney's own greed for treasure but that that being said the fourth one uh, or none of them from the first second to the third and the fourth will ever be as good as the first no the first and that's why we're the talking first about was this magic one. and a was lightning in a bottle uh and that's why you know there's so much to talk about Honestly. but the second the second and third and even the fourth were good con continuations of the story and his characters uh the fifth was a complete bastardization uh with a new you know n even more characters and new writers uh new directors like it, it changed hands and it basically was 
it was almost like a fan movie of people who grew up watching the original and then tried to make their own spin of it. Uh, and they completely ruined Jack Sparrow's character as well as Barbosa's character. And they also kind of, they got, they did something terrible, which is they removed the meaning from everything from all of the past movies. They deflated the meaning by involving Greek mythology for some reason and creating a magic MacGuffin that undoes all curses. You know, that's something you see in like a children's cartoon, not a not a movie, not a fe- blockbuster feature. That's a pretty weak device. And it, for them uh, to do that... cheap way out, yeah. For them to do that, at you know, basically destroying all of the magic of the series from the undead pirates to Davy Jones to the Kraken to the Locker. All of that is moot now because they could have just got this freaking what? This trident of Poseidon and somehow that has an the Greek trident of Poseidon has an effect on, you know, all of the other pagan gods of the sea. I, I don't know. Permit me to doubt. But again, that movie doesn't exist. Yeah. It really there's doesn't. So many, there's so many other issues I have with it that I can't even begin. But that might be a fun talk as well. One day, just shitting on the fifth, <laughs> the non-existent fifth Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, and if I mean, if we do that, I'll have to actually go and, like, watch the whole thing. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> but this frame... From this movie is one to remember and it's one that I believe a lot of people uh, when they think of Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl they think of this scene or they come back to this scene because it's so impactful it stays with you yeah and, and for so many reasons right yeah, yeah. it really if you, if actually if you were to use one scene from the movie in the trailer that that's the one I would do because it doesn't reveal anything, but it introduces you that they're everything you need to know. <laughs> yeah. It gives I mean, you the like, threat. The threat yeah. becomes very real. And I mean, it also sort of, uh, like, it also kind of just says, like, hey, like, I mean, like, <laughs> it just know, says, like, hey. <laughs> um, it basically, see, you know what? Without actually putting that line of dialogue into the trailer, like, this shot and scene is basically the essence of Barbosa's line, you best start believing in ghost stories because you're in one, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, the, the, if there's one scene or sequence that kind of shows that the best, it's the sequence that comes after that line of dialogue, but also this oh, yeah. one. But also so, this one, yeah. But also this one. So, I, think, I mean, I think you're right. I think if you were to do like a 30 to 45 second teaser trailer for Instagram, you know, that you know, th- like nowadays, this is a perfect scene, you know, with, with the music and like some sound and, and oh yeah, it'd be great. There's something, the thing about this scene is it takes a beat all unto itself. You Not a lot of uh, movies do that so much at least in the west i find uh many 
many Japanese and other foreign films, uh, but particularly, you know, the works of, uh, you know, like Akira and uh, the stuff by Miyazaki and even, you know, the earlier Japanese works like Kurosawa, they, they all take moments to establish setting, tension, and world just by observing, just by being, you know, they, they show uh, these scenes without dialogue or just these establishing scenes or scenes where it's just an army marching across a field or, in, you know, in the case of like Throne of Blood, it's the, the trees marching towards them. Uh, those things, we often, uh, and what I mean by over in the West is we often in Hollywood are always to action cut to action cut to action 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 and this while this is technically action that i would argue that it's more of a scenic moment we are you know helpless observers underwater as this scene is unfolding before us and it it gives us a moment to appreciate everything that's happening and everything that's come before as both the music and the visuals remind us of the stakes of the the stakes and the plot of the film and it builds us perfectly it creates a moment of rising tension right before the actual climax whereas many other movies would have either a slow a slower start uh gradually just kind of cutting into the action of the climax or just kind of abruptly you know from one action to the other boom now we're in the climax taking this moment not only gives the characters their due screen time but it also gives the audience that moment of awe that moment of going whoa and that's that's what i love about cinema it that's when it that's when it takes you out of your seat and puts you in the in the movie yeah, and and you know what? Like that was that Dylan, that was such a fantastic way to conclude this episode. I think you wrapped it up like a present on Christmas morning. That that was really beautiful. And you know what? I think the only thing that I will say is is I love cinema for some of the same reasons. I you know, as I said in in episode 1, if you were there in episode 1, I really do believe that cinema is the closest thing to real magic. And we experience it every time we watch a great film. And um, while there are a lot of subjective elements and interpretation involved in art, not just film, but also, but art, you know, we know when we see a bad movie. Um, and this is, this is not a bad movie. And I really think that, I really do believe that film is you know, the closest thing to real magic. And I really just hope that over the course of our careers that we can produce something of this, uh, of this scale, this scope, this quality and, and have it be seen by, uh, by a large audience, unlike this podcast, unfortunately, <laughs> hopefully well, we'll, you know, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll kind of gain an audience and we'll build an audience. And I really want to thank you very much for coming today um, on Discord to record. Thank you for having me. And, All we can uh, do is try to make our frames work. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, 
just a reminder, just to talk a little briefly, just before we uh, before we hit the um, record button one more time to end the recording. I just want to say thank you very much to the audience that does listen and watch on YouTube and hopefully we'll move over uh, and or stay on YouTube because we will continue to upload to YouTube as you are most appreciated. Yeah, as the as we uh, you start using some streaming platforms. Um, you know, I just want to say thank you very much for everybody's uh, involvement so far as this is our third episode if you want to watch or listen to uh an episode about scott pilgrim versus the world you can go back and listen to episode two joker is our is episode one um featuring robin johnston episode two features kevin drews those are great great films uh and and some good discussions so go check those out uh if you have already I uh, hope you'll stay with us for the rest of uh, for the rest of our journey in Framework. Framework is a film-centric podcast featuring various young filmmakers as they talk about how a single frame relates to the bigger picture. Producers, writers, directors, and cinematographers break down films and dig deeper into the art form as a medium for storytelling in this modern world. And what a world it is of pirates and more pirates. Thanks, Dylan, so much for, for being here. Um, if there's anything else you want to add to to this podcast, feel free. Um, otherwise, we'll uh, we'll call it a day. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful talking. It has been great. And hopefully we can have you again, maybe uh, to shit on Pirates 5. Bring me that horizon. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dylan. <laughs> and really bad eggs. Okay. Cue music. <laughs> Drink up me hearties yo-ho.